I didn't bring my cowbell. Welcome okay, to Medically we Speaking, Auburn's own medical radio show with host Dr. Mark Vaughn of the Auburn Medical Group and Larry Finney. Okay, up Periscope, flood tube one, <laughs> waiting for a fire control solution. We are on now. This is Medically Speaking Radio with oh, Larry Finney yeah, and Dr. Mark Vaughn, and we're getting lots of hearts on Periscope because we have a larger live audience on Periscope than we do on medicallyspeakingradio.com. And we also have our audience on iTunes, leave a rating, and and we're going to have as our guest a uh, sort of a a Periscope uh, uh, celebrity. He, he is, is Dr. Neil Flock, uh, who is, and I'll I'll read this from his bio online. He's a board certified general surgeon who has specialized in advanced laparoscopic foregut and bariatric surgery. Humans don't have four guts, do they? We're thinking cows. I thought that was veterinary. The, the human equivalent. <clears throat> Excuse me. Oh, okay. Anyway, he's the director of minimally invasive and bariatric surgery at Norwalk Hospital in Norwalk, Connecticut. And we're going to have him on live with us via Skype. Very soon. And I am very soon. And he'll probably be periscoping from his end of things. because I would expect. He's oh, wait. Of, no, he's using his phone to talk to us, so yeah. he can't periscope and oh, you can't do two things Skype at once. At once. He oh. should, though. He should do that for his periscope. You know, yeah. He's got followers, too. Well, see, he, that's, we'll, we, we will pirate his followers for today, <laughs> right? We're sharing. So all There's y'all out there on go. Periscope who normally follow Dr. Neil Flock, just jump on over here to, to uh, what, what would be the... What would be the to search? find us? Yeah. At Dr. Vaughn. Okay, there it is. Vaughn, V-A-U-G-H-A-N. You know how to spell it after... After years. How many years? I don't know. 40 years? Anyway, this guy, uh, Dr. Flock, graduated from Tufts University in Medford, Massachusetts. Magna cum laude, I must say. Um, Boston University School of Medicine. Anyway, simplifying things, he knows a whole lot. He is an expert on the uh, surgery of the human uh, digestive tract. Yes. So... With that, let's give him a call. We're going to reach him via Skype, and we're going to call him now. Oh, also, going on in Auburn, the Western States 100 is right now. Okay, so for you ultra runners, uh, these the people who run over, that is to say over the, the distance of marathon, this is a 100-mile foot race starting in Squaw Valley, California, and ending right here in our little hometown of Auburn, California. Our high school. At our, our alma mater high school. Um, and the goal is to... Well, the goal is to finish, but but the the goal <laughs> standard is to finish under twenty four hours. Then yeah. you get the coveted belt buckle. That's right. So, and, and it is true. I have a patient who has a belt buckle. Now you get one that says one hundred mile if you finish it in under twenty four hours. This patient has one that says one thousand miles. Oh, okay, so he's, he's done, done 10. ten times. Yeah, he's done it ten times. Amazing. Pretty cool. Okay, with that, let's go ahead and give a call through Skype. To Dr. Flock. Hello. Hello, Dr. Flock. You are on Medically Speaking Radio with your well, host, Larry Finney, and Dr. <laughs> Dr. Mark Vaughn. Vaughn yeah. So I am Dr. Mark Vaughn, and? And I'm Larry Finney, and I just finished giving you a glowing uh, introduction, so you, you need to live up to it. <laughs> well, I'm not quite sure what you said, but I'm here coming live from Connecticut. And um, it is just a complete honor to be able to speak on your radio show. Uh, I'm not sure how you introduced me, but um, it it really is a pleasure. And I think it's a a wonderful feat of technology that we can do a show like this from so far away. 
Yeah, and, and sound. We, we, well, I'll, just to, to put you at ease, I, I basically uh, read from your uh, CV there on your website, so I, I didn't, I didn't make up anything. That's that's great. <laughs> um, so, I'm hearing in in the background of my audio, and this is more a question for Doctor Vaughn. It's I'm like a hear- game. It, I did. I, I'm hearing like crowd noises. Are we getting the feed from the Western States 100 mile race too, or is that in Doctor Flock's end of things, or is he standing out on a football field? <laughs> I'm I'm in an actually a very silent room. My children have just gone away from the summer, and it's completely silent in this room except for maybe a creak or two. So that's not coming from me. Okay. I just made it stop. It was the uh, feed from the Western States 100 mile endurance run that's occurring live right now uh, from Olympic Village in uh, Tahoe to our town. And so we were watching the runners go through. I I got rid of some hiss too. You may have noticed it sounds a little cleaner now. Okay. Give Uh, me some context, uh, Dr. Flock. We... uh... We, we, in our intro, we just mentioned, too, this is a local plug, but there's a local 100-mile endurance race that ends here in our town of Auburn, California. So Dr. Vaughn had the uh, 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 video feed going, but we forgot to shut off the audio. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, you know, I used to be a cross-country runner in high school, but oh, wow. um, there, there are no races behind me going on right now. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so... Uh, this is wonderful. I, can I call you Mark or Dr. Vaughn? Uh, I'm always Mark to colleagues. I prefer that, uh, patients refer to me as Dr. Vaughn. I guess that's a bit of a hang up I have. How do you do that with your patients? Well, I, I prefer that my patients call me Dr. Flock and I always find it a little awkward when they call me by my first name. So it always makes me feel uncomfortable. But then again, I was raised by a physician who was the chief of medicine at his hospital and he was very well respected and still is so we always had a formality to calling doctors by by doctor and so i always feel a little bit uncomfortable and i think it's important to get that off the uh off my chest first so i I will refer to you as dr vaughn and um i think that's wonderful you deserve that for everything you've done and your wonderful videos that I've watched. Oh, thank you. Yeah, I, I, I like to have the patients have somebody who has had that training and does have that degree. You know, that's that's giving value to the patient because they deserve to have that level of care and expertise. So I feel like it's honoring the patient to have it be somebody who's addressed as doctor. But I don't know. Maybe I'm just saying that to stoke my own ego. <laughs> well, no, it, it was like, Dr. Evil himself said. Dr. Evil. He said, it's Dr. Evil. I didn't go to four years of evil medical school to be called Mr. Thank you very much. (laughs) Oh, I don't know you're helping us. I think we need to give, we, we need to give ourselves a little bit of credit. We want to be on the same line and understanding of our patients and make sure that we don't seem arrogant. But on the other hand, yeah. Have had a level of training and suffered through, you know, four years of medical school and residency and gone through all that. So I think we are deserving, but we also have to live up to our name as well, and that's very important in in that in the way that we behave in our professionalism and that sort of thing. So I think it it takes two people. You know, you've got to be deserving of the name doctor too, and uh, that that is also important. Okay, well, that, that takes out everything I do on Periscope right there. Yeah. Well, as- no, no, actually, I think that what you do on Periscope is, is 
wonderful. And I think that right now we are under a critical eye that is growing. You know, Periscope is the other day I looked, it was 3.5 million people signed on and then it was 3.8. And then I said, you know, wow, this an article came out this morning. I'm not sure if you saw it from Medscape about doctors and professionalism and Dr. Oz. And and that's something that really kind of struck me this morning on my Twitter um Twitter tweets and and interchange with patients and people. So it's something that is important how we're perceived and moving ahead we have to be careful about that. And I don't want to step ahead of what you wanted to discuss or ask me, but I think medical professionalism we have to be very careful to carry through and be careful of upholding everything we do in the office on Periscope and on Twitter and other social media uh, avenues, such as your radio show. Yeah. Okay. That sounds like something we were thinking we'd talk about bariatrics, but I think that what you're speaking about is so very timely given what's happening with this revolution of social media and both of us being on Periscope. Well, that's one you can't have fun with it, right? Yes, and you know, I did tweet something out yesterday. There was this incredible Star Wars video game uh, that I just quickly put on Periscope, which was kind of neat. So it's important to experiment with Periscope and show people what you can do. I think it's it's revolutionary for television itself. I think you now have interactive TV, and that's going to change things going forward. They're probably going to forget about us when the big guys have Periscope on all the big media stations and people are interacting with television shows and changing the sequence of events of the show. So it's very exciting what's going to happen and all that potential. So medicine's exciting, but also Periscope itself and what's going to happen with it is is quite exciting as well. So Dr. Flock, this is Larry Finney, the, the layperson of the gang, but I was wondering what, what spurred you or what um, um, encouraged you to start using Periscope? Well, I've got to, I, I don't want to make my story long-winded, but I have to start back with social media because it all intertwines. And as both of you may have encountered way back when, those emails you got from something like LinkedIn to come and join, yeah. and I ignored them forever. I was always anti-Facebook and anti-LinkedIn, and I, I thought it was, like many people, a waste of time. And then... I weakened at about 3.30 in the morning on trauma call. I was up in my on-call room, and I answered one, and I said, you know what? If I'm going to do this LinkedIn crazy thing, I'm going all for it. And I probably linked up with, with several hundred people, and over the next several months, this was in probably the summer of 2013, I linked up with about 5,000 people. But I realized that LinkedIn was, was only limited. And I was uh, an advisor at a meeting for the Allergan Company, where a gentleman uh, presented, and he presented Twitter and social media. And quickly, I realized that Twitter could be a tool to communicate with the public about what was so important to me, and that was obesity, not only the obesity epidemic, but the treatment of obesity, and even more specifically, bariatric surgery, 
as one of the treatments, but not the whole story of obesity. So I felt that Twitter was a way in which I could link up with, communicate, tell the true medically oriented message to people about the obesity pandemic and potential treatments for it. And then along came Periscope. And I couldn't believe the, I was very excited, I must say, about the potential for it. And I think I got on Periscope in April. I'm not sure the exact date. I would have to go back and check. And I believe Periscope started in March. And I said, this is a wonderful tool to educate people about obesity and answer questions real time. And it was just so exciting to me to be able to do that. And it kind of took off from there. And I, I'm believe that we're just in the beginning of it. So I think that both Dr. Vaughn and myself are in the beginning of what we can do with Periscope and where we can take it. Do you agree with that? Absolutely. Uh, I'm hoping for a big influence on the, the public's access to factual medical information because we have so many myths out in the world and so many things that are just simply not um, not uh, factual at all. You know, the, the, uh, alternative health that is not based on evidence, the money making with snake oil products that's out there. And that's kind of a big part of why I like to have people have access to a medical doctor on social media. I think that, you know, it's very easy, even as a physician. And I must say that this has happened to me. Uh, and it's the reason why I tweeted out this morning that you can fall into that without clearly, it, it's very hard for us to read all the evidence and all the papers yeah. and know all the facts. And it's very easy for us to fall into the, you know, the land of Dr. Oz, I kind of call it the Wizard of Oz. So we have to be very careful uh, not to do that. And it's very difficult to sometimes slip into that. And I have read some of these alternative medicine sites and a lot of some of the information, I should say probably most of the information is credible. And then sometimes it takes off and goes off on a tangent, which is not so credible. So although much of the information is helpful, I'll, there is there is information that isn't. And I think it's important for us physicians to be very, very careful, stick to the medically based evidence and also describe evidence. I think people are allowed to have their opinion, but it should be described as opinion. For instance, I'm giving my opinion of what I think is going to happen with the microbiome or treatment, uh, certain diets. And that's my opinion, but it has to be tagged opinion. I think that uh, some, phys some physicians have been critical of studies, and we've tweeted studies out and said, hey, this is a study uh, that could help human beings to lose weight, and actually it's a study about mice. So I don't think it's wrong to be <laughs> that tweeting that study, but to then drag it and say, hey, this is going to help people, well, that's a really, a really big stretch. So we have to be careful to, to tag these things and say, hey, this is a mouse study, and it may be helpful. 
So there must be, I think, in the future, and I was thinking of this, of kind of scoring, giving an evidence-based scoring to a lot of the articles or the talks that we're giving. Uh, and and I, what are your thoughts on that? When people come up with objective scoring for things that are hard to objectify, I, I get a little nervous because that's like, um, I don't know, just applying a scale of zero to 10 on. Well, it's a little bit like these hypothetical questions about, you know, if there was a fight between, you know, Godzilla and uh, Barry Bonds, who would win? We, you know, we'll just never know, right? <laughs> hey, so. I'm picking Godzilla. Yeah, all the way. <laughs> well, I don't know. I'm going with Barry. But, um, you know, Dr. Flock, you, you mentioned about, you know, the, this whole getting back to this notion of, of social media. I'm thinking that from the patient standpoint, it provides greater access, um, you know, providing that we all avoid charlatanism and et cetera, that um, you know, many patients are reluctant to go, go see their doctor for various reasons. Maybe they're afraid of the, the face-to-face. Maybe they feel they can't afford it or whatever. It's so much easier to flip on, you know, the, the computer screen or your iPhone screen or whatever and realize that you have access and maybe you can ask a question. And um, getting good information out there is critical. And so I think that today maybe we'll engage in a bit of that. We've, we've got our periscope up and we're um, cruising through the warm Pacific waters right now. <laughs> and uh, hopefully some folks would like to discuss uh, your, your area of expertise or bariatric uh, surgeries or uh, gastroesophageal reflux disease or whatever. Or periscope. Or periscope itself. Who cares? You know, That'd be yeah. great. Wonderful. So we'll op- open it up for comments on periscope and also open it up for people to Skype in. I believe we can take an- Yeah, why don't you let Skype folks call? know how they can do that? Okay, to Skype in, you would be at medicallyspeakingradio.com and click on the little Skype. Uh, it's a blue s in a circle on the right side of the screen we lower call part that of the screen. an icon in icon the, that's yes, the word we call for that it. an icon in the social media world you, <laughs> iconography right here on right, the show right. and then they can also just find us um, on periscope we're, we're periscoping right now it's at dr vaughn so and we were getting some comments earlier lots of hearts I, and i've got to admit something i'm jealous what are you jealous you've got of me on the radio you've got me on the radio using my phone and I can't periscope. I, I know. So, I'm sorry. That's not fair. We'll have you, to buddy. switch roles. <laughs> Dr. We'll Vaughn to... has, uh, but I have prior to getting on, I did send out a message on Twitter that I would be on medically speaking radio. So hopefully some people from uh, the, the um, Neil flock camp will be, uh, will be tuning in. I should say, right. We're hoping for that. We would we would greatly welcome how, it. How do you how do you specifically tune on to the radio? Okay. Well, it's 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 not a radio in the sense of uh, broadcast radio. We're we're coming through the uh, this new invention called the interwebs. So uh, it's it's actually uh, an internet feed. So our audience catches us on medicallyspeakingradio.com. There's a live page, and they listen to it through a player called Mixler. And then we'll also have, you know, lots of downloads on iTunes. Yeah, this, after we this post. becomes a podcast later that can be archived and then accessed later on by, who knows, by civilizations hundreds of years from now. Well, can, can I ask a question? Sure. Oh, yes. 
Now, prior to performing a, a procedure, uh, videotaped or on Periscope, do you what what do you discuss with the patient beforehand, and how do you address and say this is going to be on Periscope? Is that okay with you? Usually, we've already established that the procedure is going to be done, and then as I'm going to prepare for the procedure, I pull the computer up and bring up a consent form and ask. Would you want to share your procedure with the world on the internet? Patients find it fun to interact with the audience. These are people who have an interest in medical procedures, many of them being people in medical education, pre-medical students and medical students who have commented to me in the past about how much they enjoy it. And I am blown away at, first of all, more than half of the patients agree to do it and they enjoy it. They like interacting with the uh, comments. They, they uh, laugh at the comments. And I think I wrote, or in an interview, it was written about me that the patients seem to behave different when they're on camera. And it's, uh, we all. I'm, I'm not quite sure how to, how to put it into words. Uh, they're, they're normally appreciative, but it, it seems to be uh, almost like it's done for the camera. <laughs> When they make the comments about how wonderful I am or whatever, uh, it's it, it makes me look good from a marketing side. I'll say that. <laughs> well, you know, it's, I guess people behave a little bit differently uh, when they're in front of a camera or talking or speaking on the on the radio. Uh, maybe a little more guarded, or may want to teach a little bit more. Um, it's on you know. Sometimes you get these comments when people actually have to put their their face to something or their name to something when it's even the patient they're a little uh, a little more professional or a little more on guard i would say yeah and and you know we're talking here about the patients being in some way better when they're on camera i believe i am also because i'm not only doing this procedure for the patient i'm doing this procedure with the whole world to criticize my technique <laughs> or uh, or so my so in other words, you're like a professional uh, athlete, you know, where uh, thousands of people gather to watch you and criticize your performance. Or maybe just dozens. But yeah, yeah it, it puts you at a different level of having to perform, which sure. works fine for me because, because of my personality type and my background in theater. Every patient interaction, I need to be already, even before Periscope, I need to be performing at my best. So as I put my hand on the handle to the door to go in an exam room, I purposely smile. There's a smile on my face and a warm greeting as I come to that patient, almost like walking onto a stage and playing a role. And it's not just for myself to be able to have a, a, a good reception from the patient. It's for the patient because that is therapeutic for them to have that warmth come across to be able to make them to laugh, uh, to be able to make them feel like somebody really enjoyed being with them. And I believe that it helps me to, in fact, enjoy them more, to put on the face and then go through the motions. Well, I completely agree. I think it's very important that patient interaction, because patients can tell if you're 
Um, you know, if you're unhappy and you show it on your face or your concern, patients are looking and reading your face and reading your body um, communication. Uh, you're, you're, they're perceiving these other indications of maybe what the doctor is thinking about them or how they're doing or the results of their tests. So I think it's so important that you do that. And I wasn't aware of your theater background, but I think that you learn those skills. I'm, I'm frustrated because I didn't take theater, uh, <laughs> but I think that that's such a skill that's very, very helpful because patient patients really, they're tuned into that. And, and I've had patients say, geez, Dr. Flock, you, you made a little frown with your right eyebrow. Uh, is everything okay? And it's so important to communicate that across to patients. A lot of that comes across, not on the radio, but it comes across on Periscope too, which is wonderful uh, for people to actually see you. W wonderful when it comes across well, <laughs> yes. Yes, when it comes across well. But, you know, like I say, we are putting, we actually are really kind of putting our necks out there a little bit. Uh, because, you know, there's Saturday Night Live, which is rehearsed about three or four or five or six or seven or eight, nine, ten times, which is live TV and comedy. Then there's a doctor going out and televising themselves. And you've got to be careful what you say or how you act or how you behave. And um, we're producing a lot of these videos uh, that can't be played back now for very long, but maybe in the future they will be. So we are putting our, our necks out a little bit and taking a little bit of risk when, when doing that. Uh, like you say, hopefully it goes well, but you never know. Uh, and you may get a phone call in the middle of your Periscope talk, which is always <laughs> funny, which happened to me. I, I, you, you described that happening to yourself. And the first time I thought that happened, I thought it was pretty funny. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, um, the when when the wife is calling to bring home some milk or something and the periscope goes off is always a good one yeah uh, I, I had that experience several times uh, dr <laughs> flock i i assume that in your your particular practice doing uh or performing um procedures for for purposes of periscope is probably not practical because your patients will be what unconscious or whatever Oh, I'm I'm sorry. Could you, I missed what you said. I think we actually did blackout for two seconds. Could you okay. repeat your question? Yeah, yeah. My question was, it's probably not practical for you to to do uh, procedures on Periscope, owing to the fact that they're a little more complicated than, say, doing a cortisone injection to a shoulder, that kind of thing. And plus, your patients are going to be unconscious. Well, I think that it's a wonderful idea. And I'm very excited to do it, but it brings in a lot of other questions. For instance, if you're doing Periscope in an institution, I need I think you need to run it by the institution's legal department and how they perceive it. And I think there's always a little bit of fear, and I'm about to do that, but I'm sure there's always a little bit of fear when you do that. Oh, my um, And I'll, I'll tell you two interesting stories, uh, but... The, the next step is you've got to get the patient's consent. And I have experience doing that. You know, we, we sometimes tape patients' operations, or but then never do anything with the tape. And then we take pictures that we give the patient or put in the medical record. So, so that information never leaves the hospital, doesn't go anywhere. Um, 
and uh, often is just erased several days later. So we do get uh, patients' permission um, to videotape them, to do interviews, and put on our website, and we have a legal document that we have them fill out. And hospitals do tape operations and then put them on YouTube or put them at, on meetings. And I just was watching the, uh, the obesity weekend meeting or the American Society of Metabolic and Bariatric Surgeons meet, meeting, and they were videotaping three live surgeries around the world, and the doctors were watching, and someone was periscoping that. So, you know, Oops. suddenly you're periscoping something that didn't know it was going to be periscoped. So that yeah. brings in a question. Yeah. Um, and, and all these, you know, which brings in the question of the, do you remember the Pac-Man fight? The, the big fight that was on, on uh, HBO or some oh, other Ma cable. Manny Pacquiao. And people and, paid uh, to watch, yes. Yeah. People paid to watch it. And then people were uh, periscoping that fight. And I was watching the fight on Periscope. Yeah. So, you know, it brings in questions of legally how all this is going to be down the line. And I'm sure the lawyers are going to get into all this down the line. So we have to be careful initially not to cross any lines and be very professional. And I'm trying to do that while also making it interesting. So are you still there, Mark? Yeah, yeah, we we still are. We're we're kind of part part of the problem is we're we're fiddling with the uh, the technology here. The technology is wonderful, but it requires occasional maintenance. We're having well, to realign cameras and so forth. While listening, we're also unfortunately we're uh, we're multitasking, multitasking yeah. because I'm I'm greeting the Periscope followers who I know as they come on because as you know, a good Periscope you acknowledge as many of the followers as you can. Well, let's, I, you know, I, w I would like to talk about the, uh, the practice of, of bariatrics, actually. Um, okay. It, it, it's essentially, oh, wait, I, I'm being interrupted here. Well, I, I was just saying this would be a nice time to make a little natural break between talking about Periscope and medicine, although I, there's more I want to talk oh, about. Time to plug the commercial in? Put the commercial in and then transition All to right. bariatrics. So after this message from our sponsor, we'll, uh, we'll come back with a, a discussion with Dr. Neil Flock about uh, the practice of, of bariatrics and weight loss. Okay, so Dr. Flock, we'll be back in 30 seconds. I'll, I'll be here. <laughs> Following a hospital stay, you may need to make a sudden decision about skilled nursing care. It's easy to feel confused by the types of care needed. At Auburn Oaks Care Center on Bell Road, trust that we have the facts you need about skilled nursing care. The physicians, nurse practitioners, nurses, and rehabilitation therapists at Auburn Oaks will ensure that you understand the appropriate care needed. That's one reason why Auburn Oaks is voted best of the best by the Auburn Journal year after year. Visit us or go to auburnoakscarecenter.com. And we are back. Thank you for your patience. Um, should I say anything about our current sponsorship status or is that not oh, no, any of our fine. audience that's business? Fine. We're that was our last obligated commercial for our uh, first six months. Actually it wasn't full six months, first half of the year sponsorship. So we may actually evolve into something we wanna new. we wanna take on more sponsors and, and, and we we'd welcome them back as well. Or or maybe that, that said I want to talk about the practice of bariatrics. Uh, it, it, so as a layperson, my understanding of it is it's a, it's a surgical intervention uh, to assist in, in loss, weight loss for 
I guess we would say morbidly obese patients. I mean, what is the typical profile of a patient for whom uh, a bariatric surgery or procedure would be recommended? Well, currently, the recommendations to undergo bariatric surgery, the indications are in those, and I'm going to start with a BMI of 35, and a medical condition such as diabetes, hypertension, sleep apnea, or or some other severe uh, arthritic problems as well. And it depends on the insurance company at what is exactly covered. So it's not someone who's simply overweight and wants to look better at the beach? No. There's nothing... I am not one who is pushing this surgery for cosmetic reasons. There are some people who would like to do that or have lower BMIs, and I believe there is also a lower indication, a lower BMI indication, which is a BMI of 30. So just just for the uh, lay audience, BMI is body mass index. It's a ratio of your height versus your weight. It is is a a mathematical calculation uh, with two variables, two pieces of information, you got to plug in a formula. And one piece of the information is your height, and the other p- piece of information is your weight. And when you plug it into this formula, you get a number. And the number means if your number is between 20 and 25, that means that your weight is normal. If it's below 20, you're actually underweight. Now, if you're over 25, then you're overweight. And if your BMI is over 30, you're considered to be obese. And if your BMI is over 35, you are morbidly obese. The word morbid means you're, you're sick from the obesity. Mm, okay. So although, although these words are older words and we can argue about how we're going to use the terminology, we do know that the insurance companies have figured out who's going to live the longest, and that's the people with those BMIs between about 20 and, and 25. And those Roughly are the folks they want to insure because they're going to get premiums right. and hopefully not have to pay out a lot of medical bills. So I have patients questioning me and saying, you know, my that, that weight is, that, that BMI of 23, my weight, that wouldn't be healthy for me. I would look funny. And I I always answer, you know, the insurance companies figured out who's going to cost the least from a medical bill standpoint and who's going to live the longest. So they've got to figure it out. We doctors haven't done all those calculations ourselves, but uh, the, the insurance companies, if they know one thing, they know that. So people tend to understand that a little bit. So let's say we have this morbidly obese patient, the BMI 35 plus. Um, what is the procedure and and how does it help them? Well, I, I first I must say I, I didn't complete. If you have a BMI oh. over 40, you don't need to have a, a um, comorbidity, which is diabetes or hypertension. Okay. You should qualify for the surgery. So your, your question was... Uh, oh, essentially, what surgery. is what is uh, what are the various forms of bariatric surgery, and how does it help the patient uh, to lose weight? So, bariatric surgery is going to be further defined, and what's starting to happen is bariatric procedures and then bariatric operations. 
And where we're starting to categorize as bariatric procedures are things such as, or procedures such as the balloon, which hopefully will be coming on the market soon, which is a temporary procedure that's done for about six months. And then the lap band procedure, which could be a permanent procedure. And then the surgery category starts with the sleeve gastrectomy, uh, the gastric bypass procedure, and then an operation called the duodenal switch operation. So these are all forms of, of, shall we say, altering the plumbing, the internal plumbing of the patient so that what, so that they cannot eat quite as much, just that their digestive system works differently than it did before? Well, the procedures work a little bit differently. They tend to work on the idea of something called restriction, where you're physically limiting the amount of food that can be consumed. And restriction limits that which is consumed in the, with the with the hopes that you're going to lose weight because you're eating less and you're burning the same amount of calories and then you lose weight, which is a concept which partially works but does not completely work because when you look at the operation category, starting with the sleeve gastrectomy, which also has that idea of restriction because we're in the sleeve gastrectomy, what we're doing is we're creating the stomach, we're making the stomach into a very long tube, okay? And we're eliminating or actually removing a portion of the stomach. And with that sleeve gastrectomy, we're not just doing a restrictive operation. We're not just creating something that's limiting the amount of food that someone eats. We're also altering someone's metabolism. And this is a very hard concept for people to understand. We're actually reducing the amount of a hormone called ghrelin. And ghrelin is produced by the cells in the fundus of the stomach. And when we do that, we actually, the result is, independent of the amount of food you eat, you're going to be somewhat less hungry. Not completely hungerless, but you're going to be somewhat less hungry. So that operation is affecting your body by cutting out that part of the stomach or removing that part of the stomach. You produce less of this hormone ghrelin, which is made in, and I like to call ghrelin, I think of it as gremlin. And when I give presentations, I show a picture of the gremlin in that movie, Gremlins. Right. Because the more gremlin or ghrelin you have, the worse you are because the more hungry you are. And, you know, in the morning, before we eat breakfast, our ground level in our blood is very high. And then we go to eat breakfast and the ground level goes low. And then before lunch, it goes up way high. And then after lunch, it goes way low. And before dinner, once again, you see the pattern. So if you have a sleeve gastrectomy, the ground level, your baseline ground level before lunch, before dinner, after dinner, doesn't matter when, is always much, much lower. Okay, yeah. now they're activated forms of ghrelin, and there's a whole science to it. So what I'm saying is not completely true, but it's mostly true. 
Um, and by having limited amount of ghrelin, it decreases your hunger, therefore you eat less. So you have the restriction and you also have alteration of your metabolism and or your hunger level. So these surgeries are affecting us in different ways. There are several, many different ways, and I can keep talking about it. We, we'd probably have oh. about 10 radio shows, <laughs> but I do want to touch on how the sleeve gastrectomy affects diabetes. It also stimulates the production of another, um, another chemical or hormone called GLP-1. And as a family practice doctor, you're familiar with metformin. And metformin, what that drug does is stimulates or increases GLP-1. Well, the surgery does the same thing. And that's one of the reasons why it affects and helps diabetic patients so much. So that's the sleeve gastrectomy. Hmm. Now, we do have a question that came over our chat through Mixler. Uh, Radio Junkie asks, what can you eat before going to bed that won't add weight? Well, is this in general? I'm not sure if they're asking in general or if they're asking after the surgery. Because sometimes we fall into that trap of may, about answering questions about post-surgical oh, patients. Uh, let's, let's, or, assume or patients. You, let's assume they're talking about in general. I think this sounds like a person who's, uh, this is my assumption, who, who likes a little snack before bedtime but doesn't want to load up on something that's going to make them fat. Well, well I, I, uh, on Twitter today I talked about carbs, and I always have to be dangerous because, you know, they're good foods and bad foods. And I pick on the food group carbohydrate, and there are three food groups. We know that there's protein, there's fat, and there's carbohydrate. And there are a lot of carbohydrate foods that are out there that are not good for us. Now, there are also carbohydrate foods that are very good. You know, fruits and vegetables and whole grains are very good. But what tends to happen at night, you know, we all do it. We go to the cabinet, and there are the chips, or the there cookie. are the or cookies. And, and those are, those tend to be simple carbohydrates and a cookie has sugar or a chip, even if it's corn chip or even bread, uh, they have simple carbohydrates, uh, or carbohydrates. And we know that carbohydrates are like a chain. They're like a train with where each car is a sugar. And when they go into your system, that train breaks down into different sugar molecules and, and is very much like eating sugar. And the other thing that happens with carbohydrates is they are very addictive. They stimulate your brain to go and say, hey, that was good. Let me, me go more. back and eat some more. So I would say the worst food to eat at night are the carbs. Yes. And the best food for the food industry to sell you are the carbs because they want you to eat the whole package. And there's a reason why those foods are pushed and made that way because – at late at night, we like to go and eat popcorn and chips, and, and we eat more and more and more so it's gone. of them. So I would say avoid those foods and and eat foods that are healthy, uh, maybe, you know, a handful of nuts or some fruit, you know, an orange or, or something to that degree. Now, of course, we get into the whole reflux issue, and maybe an orange isn't a good thing to eat um, at night. I would say that eating late at night in general is not a good idea because you want to digest your food. Is that you because don't want of the food reflux sitting issue? in your stomach? 
Yeah, from a reflux standpoint, um, I would say the answer to the question would stop eating at seven o'clock at night. And or, um, well, is it is it a, a time or is it a interval before going to bed? Um, well, you know that's a good question. Some people may I could tell them to stop eating at seven o'clock, and they may be going to bed at seven thirty. So <laughs> you want to wait a few hours from a reflux standpoint. You want to wait probably about three three hours or so, just as a generalization. Um, I don't have any specific proof of that, but uh, people tend to do better, complain less, have more time to digest if they wait several hours before they go to bed. Okay. So. Did we have any more, uh, Doctor Vaughn? Do we have any more uh, questions on the? He he's the one that can see the monitor. Um, I haven't caught any questions on Periscope because yeah. I was talking <laughs> when yeah. they came up. But we do take Periscope questions, by the way. Uh, and then the one was about uh, what can you eat that won't add weight. And, and right. I also typed in an answer to them. I typed in, there are no zero-calorie foods. Right. So, right. But, but some being better than others, which was answered already. Right. And, and uh, don't do it three hours or, or within three hours of bedtime if you have... Uh, propensity toward uh, heartburn or gastroesophageal reflux disease, which can be very bad. I, oh, I'll have to say, Dr. Flock, I had a, I had a, a family member who's, um, well, he had Barrett's esophagus syndrome. He didn't really treat it. Uh, he had to sleep uh, in, a, in a sort of sitting up position. But ultimately, this turned into esophageal cancer, which, which mm. killed So... I mean, this is this is nothing to be messed around with, and, no. and I think I read somewhere on one of your websites that, uh, as, as far as affecting the the patient population of the United States, something like forty four percent of the adult population is affected in some way by uh, chronic heartburn or uh, GERD or something like that. You know, to to one degree or another. Yeah. Well. You know, the statistic, there was a Gallup poll done probably about 10 years ago now, and I believe it said 43% of Americans have severe heartburn at least once a month. Yeah. And it is such a common condition, and it's unclear as to whether it's increased in severity because of obesity or whether the foods that we're eating uh, or some other environmental factors. And the other... The other startling statistic is that men, the increased incidence in men with esophageal cancer uh, recently, and I, I, I don't want to misquote myself because I tweeted it, but it was a pretty significant percentage of in, increase in men who uh, have developed now uh, esophageal cancer. So Barrett's esophagus, for those people in the audience who don't know, what that means is your esophagus is lined by very flat cells called squamous cells, and they line your esophagus. And what happens is when the esophagus, which is your swallowing tube that connects to your stomach, when it's exposed to either acid or bile, which is the green um, substance that's made by your liver, it becomes very irritated. And in responding to it, we believe that the esophagus, which has the flat cells, invites somehow very elongated cells, which are called columnar cells, into the lining or to grow in the lining of that esophagus. And when that happens, it becomes a precursor, meaning it could 
the next step to that could be esophageal cancer. So people who are, are constantly exposed to either acid or stomach products, which could be bile or juices that are made by the pancreas, they can develop this Barrett's esophagus and then they're predisposed or they're at risk of developing cancer of the esophagus. And I think that that's what happened to your friend or family member, which is quite unfortunate. And the question is how to prevent that. And I don't know, you know, what exactly can medically proven prevent that. I would like to say that surgery was medically proven to prevent it, but we figured out that to do the study to prove that would be very difficult. It would need a lot of surgical patients. We believe there is some evidence that surgery can help to prevent uh, Barrett's esophagus. And there's also some evidence, which I'm not a world expert on, of ablating or getting rid of the lining of the esophagus. But there are also problems with that procedure as well. So uh, reflux is a really big and growing bothersome problem in this country that a lot of people share, a lot of people have. Um, so I hope I answered your question. Yeah. And, and I'm just, and it, it sounds like it's one of those things if you, you know, clearly if, if you let it go too far, it can get to a very serious situation. Um, avoiding it I sus as, as with many medical problems, I suppose is, is fairly simple if you have the discipline to do it, i.e., Quit eating at least three hours before bedtime. Avoid certain kinds of foods. Um, keep your weight down. Um, all the things that people aren't willing to do. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, it's also important, I think, if you have bad reflux, that you go and see a gastroenterologist, which is a stomach doctor. And I'm not sure if where you are, you do endoscopy in your family practice. Uh, I do some, but... I refer most of my patients to that they go and see a gastroenterologist and they have an endoscopy, which is what that means is a scope is put down into the esophagus and into the stomach and, and you can look and see and take little pieces of the tissue to see if you have Barrett's esophagus or to see if you have a, another problem or a different problem with your stomach. That's important to do to make sure that your condition isn't very severe. Now, some patients are also found to have what's called a hiatal hernia. And what that means in English is that part of the stomach goes up through the diaphragm into the chest. And our stomach is meant to be in our belly or below our diaphragm. Our diaphragm separates our lung cavity or chest cavity from our belly cavity. And our um, stomach is supposed to be in our belly. Uh, so it's more likely that if you have your stomach in your belly and you don't have a hiatal hernia, that you probably don't have reflux. But many people do have reflux even though they don't have a hiatal hernia. And a lot of that is caught early by primary care. What we'll do in our office is when a person's having regular symptoms of either heartburn or reflux, we'll go ahead and do a 30-day trial of a a PPI, which is currently a bad guy in the news, but over-the-counter yeah. omeprazole. And if we can get the acid down and totally eliminate the symptoms in a month's time and they don't come back after that, then we don't refer to GI. But if they do come back and they keep having a problem, then we refer to get them scoped. There, there are always questions, and as physicians, we're, 
and our medical treatment, there are things we don't know and things we recommend these days that may change later on. And as you just said, PPI is the bad guy. What you're probably referring to is the latest article, uh, which I don't know if it'll be repeated, but it showed that, you know, maybe these PPIs are causing heart attacks or putting people at risk for heart attack. Yeah, and We I- already know. But it's such a wonderful drug that it I is. must say that it, you know, we need it. We we it's yeah. it's a great drug right now, and hopefully we can continue to use PPIs because really the first line treatment is not surgery. You don't want to go and have a surgeon like me operate on you right away. You want to take your <laughs> yeah. pill and yeah, and thirty days symptoms. Surgery is for the people with the most severe problems, or yeah. the the pills don't work, or they have a huge hiatal hernia, and we should uh, get. We should get the message out that 30 days of this medicine, nobody has any evidence that causes any risk for heart attack in that short of duration. Right. And where we're seeing problems, and we must probably tell the audience, is that uh, we do see patients who have polyps in their stomach who have been taking this medication at large doses for a long time. We're not sure what happens with those polyps. We see women getting uh, more brittle bones or affecting mm-hmm. their calcium level, yep. and now we're seeing the risk of, of uh, heart conditions, and we also see that these PPIs can alter the type of bacteria that grows in our intestine, and, I, and, and interestingly enough, we are seeing with the PPI, which I do prescribe, and I prescribe for my, all my bariatric patients, it can affect the, the type of bacteria and can actually possibly affect the amount of weight that you lose. So it, the, the lesson here is that we need to use drugs for certain things, but they every drug does have some sort of effect or other effects on our body, and we have to be aware of what those effects are and uh, not simply say, oh, I'm not using it because of that, but just understand what those side effects are. Yeah. Well, the preference is to only use drugs when absolutely necessary when you're not able to do something else to avoid using them. Yeah. I just wanted to return real quickly to to just close the loop and find the uh, happily ever after on the bariatric surgery, Dr. Flock. So how much weight? Well, I know uh, results may vary, but, but can the morbidly obese patient who's had a successful uh, bariatric surgery expect to lose quite a lot of weight? Yes, you know, and you you mentioned something, and back to the initial question of this is a temporary procedure, et cetera. It's really not a temporary procedure. It is, this is a permanent life change. And with the life change, you have to also embrace the fact that you've got to take care of yourself. You can't, you know, I have a friend, a person I know, uh, and this woman, she went on a cholesterol lowering drug. And then, you know, I'm out with this woman and she's eating ice cream and, and others, other right. bad foods. So, you know, the thing is, well, I'm on the drug and it's going to take care of me. Well, the surgery is <laughs> not going to completely take care of you. Yeah, the seatbelt is not so you can drive faster. No. Right, right. You know, if I get in a car crash, I'm going to live now. Uh, <laughs> no, it's not like that. You've got to, if you're going to do the surgery, which is, you know, specifically whether it's a procedure, a balloon, a, a, a band, a gastric bypass, which I haven't talked about very much, or a sleeve gastrectomy, or even the duodenal switch, any one of these operations or procedures, you have to embrace the fact that you've got to eat differently. 
And you've got to give up a lot of, number one, the amount of sugar that you eat. And you have to embrace good carbohydrates, which are fruits and vegetables and, uh, and, and whole grain uh, carbohydrates. And try to, try to limit the carbohydrates. I actually tell patients to avoid the pastas and a lot of the breads, white especially foods. sugar, the white things, yes. But, you know, um, really try to avoid that and eat more of a, more of a protein-based diet. Whether you choose to, you know, become vegan or not is a whole nother issue. But, uh, you know, eat proteins first and then good fats and limit the, um, the other types of foods. So you've got to embrace that. Exercise is also important and we strongly encourage that, but we don't like to confuse our patients because we know that exercise really is not a, a great weight loss tool. It's great for everything else. It makes you healthy. It actually helps with, with uh, medical conditions, but to, to specifically just lose weight by exercising could become very frustrating mm-hmm. unless you're exercising all day long and not eating any food. Yeah. So getting back to the surgery. So if you embrace those things, the surgery is very successful and the excess body weight loss, meaning if you're, if you're over your, your BMI, what should be your BMI? by a certain amount of weight, we call that your excess body weight. So for the sleeve gastrectomy, I give a rough number. And this may not be completely scientifically accurate, but the rough generalized number that I give out is about 60% of your excess body weight. And for the gastric bypass, the rough number is about 70%. This would make for a pretty dramatic portfolio of before and after photos. Oh, yeah. yeah. And you could go visit my website, not to plug my website, but go check out our website. Um, go ahead. Plug yeah, it in. Give, give us the site. <laughs> www.endtheweight.com. Endtheweight, W-E-I-G-H-T. E-N-D-W-E-I-G-H-T.com. Uh, okay. And, you know, you can see plenty of before and after pictures about uh, concerning patients. Okay. And uh, it's not, you know, the average patient is after a gastric bypass going to lie about 70% of their excess body weight loss. We'll have pictures of some wonderful patients on there who are like the top five or 10%. We also have other patients who are, you know, just average. So it gives you a good idea. But the one study that I must, I, I must say before. I'm, I'm, I'm sorry, Dr. Flock, we're, we're actually bumping up against a hard stop that, that the show has that I, we're limited on our time, so we have okay. to stop now. But what I'd like to do is have you hang on to Skype so we can talk to you after we end the show. That sounds wonderful. Okay. We, uh, we need to uh, play our closer here, and then we're saying goodbye to our uh, Medically Speaking Radio audience, but we'll be speaking to Dr. Flock, and those of you on Periscope can be a part of that. So until next time, this is Dr. Flock, Larry Finney, and myself telling you to stay in good health.